This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is September 21st, 2023. I'm Scott Lundbom. I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, on the equinox, whatever it is, maybe it's tomorrow, more legislative shakeups. The foreign interference saga is taking on a very new meaning. Uh, and we have a new federal party to make fun of because we haven't gotten to make fun of a minor political party for a while. It's my favorite thing to do. Well, not since we made fun of the Greens a couple weeks ago. It's true. Ironically, this new party is more active than the federal Greens. Patreon.com slash Politicos. Let's get into everything. Starting here in BC, I just want to go back to Wednesday and the, the fun I got to have that morning going out and standing in front of Coquitlam City Hall waving a rainbow flag as... You know, another about 100 people stood with me in solidarity and about 300 plus, I would say, uh, people who wanted to, it was kind of a mishmash of calls, protect our children, enshrine parents' rights, ban soji, uh, end communism. The the messaging kind of diverged a bit as the people came from different walks of life. Uh, elsewhere in the country, it looked like the counter-protest especially in like Vancouver and Victoria, massively outnumbered the protesters. But it was quite the thing to engage with some of these people and just hear the misinformation and like the different kinds of things people had been hearing about uh, porn pornographic books in elementary schools. I heard those claims a couple times. I heard, uh, you know, lots of stuff about the mainstream media being against them. What I did find most interesting about the protest this time is I had in my mind the typical like Christian convoy type white protester, but this one was majority, I would say, Muslim or at least um, South Asian coming through Coquitlam. And I think that was mirrored in a lot of different communities, which isn't totally surprising. One of the two groups uh, who organized the main part of the protest on Wednesday were like radically conservative Muslim imams, but it's kind of like a renewed mix of the Harper coalition they'd built with socially conservative immigrant communities before they talked about barbaric cultural practices and burned a bunch of bridges there. But it's a basically undid Jason Kenney's like decade of work. Yeah. In yeah, one they burned afternoon. that real fast. <laughs> so like politically we saw statements of support from mayors, from uh the Premier of BC, from uh Justin Trudeau, Jugmeet Singh, the federal conservatives, it was released, had a memo from the leader of the opposition's office to all MPs to just shut the fuck up all day. And they seemed to do that pretty effectively. Uh, the BC conservatives said they don't endorse protests, but they recognize there's a lot of things they share in common with the protesters or shared their concerns. I thought that was kind of a funny statement. I felt like they smartly didn't want to get involved in the protest, but also like wanted the respect of the protesters. 
yeah. then the BC United took the position of, you know, we have a long, the BC Liberals do have a long history of making progressive steps for protecting LGBT kids in schools with Soji starting under Christy Clark in this province. Uh, but then there was kind of this waffling in a couple of the statements Kevin Falcon made about like, we're listening to the concerns parents have, which is not saying anything really, oh, and therefore making everyone be, mad. Well, not saying anything seems to be the uh, BC United's favorite pastime these days, or not saying anything that's like a definitive stance on anything. I mean, ultimately, like the goal on most of these uh, parties on it, right, was just not be part of the news story that day, and they largely succeeded at that. At least here, I know, like in a couple other provinces, like some of the provinces that have been pushing on these uh, pronoun in school policies were a bit more sympathetic and openly like even Daniel Smith's statement around it was very waffly. Uh, and it looks like they may be investigating future issues. But yeah, none of, none of, no politicians, as far as I know, stood with the anti-Soji protesters, except maybe some school board trustees from somewhere. Uh, actually, that's not true. At least one UCP MLA did speak at one of the protests, I think, in Red Deer. Um, so yeah, it it I felt like shit. I'll be honest. After that day, like I'd had a good time with the people who I stood arm to arm with, but it, it was a lot of hatred that I saw that day, and that's that wears on the soul that I don't believe in. So, looking forward to an ugly few more months, years of continuing to fight the same battles. But speaking of battles being fought within the apertures of government, it seems like people were unhappy in one of the ministries as former Parliamentary Secretary for Sustainable Economy Adam Walker of the BC NDP is no longer in his role as Parliamentary Secretary or even in the BC NDP following undisclosed uh, workplace harassment allegations. That have been clarified to not be criminal or sexual in nature, at least. Did they even clarify that it was a harassment allegation? Everything I've seen was super vague on what it was, other than didn't reach the level of criminality. Some Something bad was happening in his office. Uh, Rob Shaw describes it in his piece in the Orca. It appears to center on employee-employer disputes involving unspecified employee complaints, multiple discipline and grievance processes, medical leave, and emerging workplace policies, according to legal receipts. So, nothing official has come out of the government, in part because they are, you know, an employer, and there are HR confidentiality things that they are subject to because they, you know, wrote the law to subject themselves to the same protections that, you know, I get in my workplace, uh, or any other person working in BC would get. So, I get like the need and the importance of that confidentiality, but it's also a little bit frustrating as a voter to hear someone, an elected representative, faces unspecified allegations and loses his job kind of over it. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I get there is an importance to confidentiality on this stuff, but at the same time, being an MLA is not the same as any other job, and rather than you know, reporting up through your normal HR channels, ultimately MLAs are hired by us, the voters, and are accountable to us, the voters. And this, how this has been approached does significantly undercut that in a way that is 
not particularly great for democratic accountability or really MLA accountability in general. Maybe. Like, is your role as a parliamentary secretary given by the voters? It's clearly not, right? It's given by the premier and the government, which is the executive. The executive isn't directly elected. And so his role as an MLA can't be stripped by the government. And so he still has that. And right. like yeah. the voters so like, are at a disadvantage in terms of not having enough information, but he can still represent them. And if he represents them well, he could be reelected as an independent, I right. guess. So like, yeah, the no longer a parliamentary secretary. Yeah, totally within the uh, purview of the party and the leader to uh, decide that. But this is no doubt going to uh, reflect significantly in the next election, which will be yeah, about a year from now. Uh, unless, I don't know, Evie's feeling like calling an early one for some reason. Uh, you know, in case of a very divided opposition or whatever. Um, in, yeah, at that point, the uh, Partsful Coquitlam voters, or whatever they're calling the uh, new riding that's going to have the updated boundaries on it, will ultimately have to pass judgment uh, on Walker. And that's where the there is some vague badness here, but we're not going to tell you what it is, does kind of undermine the ability of the voters to uh, actually make an informed decision on that. Now, of course, you may decide not to run again because the chance of being reelected in a situation like this are pretty low, but that just goes to the point of, like, there isn't a... The voters' role in accountability here is being short-circuited. There's like another element of how the voters play with this as well, where like province-wide voters will have to decide if they think the NDP has handled this well. Like I don't think one workplace MLA dispute would become an election question, but it could, you know, if they flubbed it, which I don't think they have, um, but if they had flubbed it in some way or it comes out that there is that this is a trend that ministers in this government are abusive to staff like that could become a framework around which for the opposition to press that you know these people don't deserve to be in office and i don't think we see any evidence of that because there have been ministers in the past who have lost their job where it seems like they were not very nice people to their staff and that is true on both sides of the aisle from what i have heard and i'm not going to try and like weigh who was worse but like there there have been cases of both parties with bad ministers and it seems just like assholes are out in every party mm -hmm. but it does make the diversity of uh identifications in the BC legislature more interesting when we come back cuz we go from just having like the three parties to now we have well i guess it was three parties plus an independent and now we have four parties and an independent it's still just like growing in the number of colors they have to do on the seating map. And I guess Adam's going to have to move to like the back corner behind the BC Conservatives and BC Greens. So going to be a very weird corner of the legislature with those five. So yeah, something to watch for. I mean, I this whole story just kind of feels unsatisfying in a way to me. But I can't really uh, explain much more than that. But yeah, it, it was looking like it was going to be the big talk to the uh, week until subsequent developments happened. The subsequent development that was not the big story of the week was the BC United releasing more policy. Yeah. This so came out on Tuesday. 
<laughs> yeah, they put out a uh, wildfire policy, which feels like they are uh, saw that wildfires were a big deal and then spent like a month and a bit writing a policy for it. And as a result, it just kind of lands with a thud because it no longer feels like something that is particularly relevant to a lot of what's on British London's minds at this point in uh, September. Fires are definitely still happening, but like the major evacuation orders of the Okanagan, as far as I understand, are long over and people have long returned home. So putting out bold wildfire policy reforms that amount to like hiring more firefighters and giving people money if they have to leave their home, which aren't like things... Like the big thing in here is establishing a full-time firefighting service, which we did have to look up. We don't have. We hire every December about 1,100 people for the next year. And like I can see a good argument for having full-time firefighters. I can also see like we're paying a bunch of people to sit on their asses for three months when there aren't forest fires, at least. Yeah. And like neither is the right answer and neither is the wrong answer. They're just different. Yeah, it's would hardly be unprecedented for governments to establish a force, an agency of some kind that, you know, is a break glass of in case of emergency uh, one. You know, a lot of firefighters are not uh, spending all day putting out fires uh, in the cities that employ them. Um, the military probably falls under this category too of when you need it, you really need it. But most of the time, uh, it's not fulfilling its primary mission and is just preparing, training, maintaining the equipment, etc. for that. So, yeah, not an unreasonable thing, but I am sure there's someone out there who would have to crunch the numbers to actually say whether or not it made sense. And it's uh, not something either of us have the uh, expertise or time to do. Yeah, and that's what's completely missing here. It's like, this is a better structured policy release than the last one we look like. It's a press release, and right below it is the backgrounder with more details, but nowhere in here is a dollar number. And for a party that's going to talk about fiscal responsibility, they're talking about cutting checks automatically to everybody who's evacuated, which sounds like a great idea, but what? how much? How big is the check? Where is this money coming from? That's what you would kind of expect from this party and that's what they would criticize the government for not saying yeah, well, if it, like maybe you just say this all comes from the massive contingency that is baked into the bc budget every year that always ends up go or almost always ends up going to forest fire uh overspending i mean that's where it'd have to be because you can't predict uh ahead of time and budget out uh how much how many people are going to be evacuated in a given year so you kind of have to pull from contingency funds that's oh you create an average based on the past five years and you round up because of climate change and kind of go with that and you'll sometimes overspend and sometimes underspend so it's a contingency fund by another name yeah but yeah really really weak release weird to not talk about a single dollar amount in here um but otherwise like these are fine ideas that I have no like ideological opposition to. They they seem like cool. Some of these should definitely be taken up. Yeah, maybe like they're, they're not <laughs> bad, but it, they're not inspiring. They they just go to underline the sense that this is a party that just feels adrift, that isn't able to actually uh, put its finger on the pulse of where British Columbians are and respond to it, and. Uh, 
I think part of it is they waited a while to put this out. And like, obviously, this is not the sort of thing that you should be dropping and trying to store political points while people are being evacuated from their homes. But, you know, within the couple weeks after, to kind of, when it's still on people's mind, but it no longer feels quite so uh, immediate and a case of trying to gain political leverage, like, that would be the time to do it. But, yeah, overall, this just doesn't feel like a a party that is knows what it wants to be and has figured out how to turn that into an actual uh, offering that uh, has any resonance. And, you know, even if wildfires are a, a major issue and a vote mover, is there anything in here that would actually be substantively different enough from what the uh, government is doing to incite anyone? Yeah, where's my, like, we are going to build firewalls around all the interior cities to make sure that fires can literally not burn them down. That's bold. This is like, we're going to spend a couple tens or hundreds of millions of dollars like deploying, on reasonable policies. Yeah, they have like a deploying local contractors for fire suppression, which, yeah, fine. Like, a lot of the work that goes on in fighting forest fires is going into the bush and building fire breaks. And yeah, as long as you're not like where the... F- fire is close enough that it becomes a danger and you actually need specialized training for it. Yeah, it's probably something that a local contractor could uh, do, but yeah, I don't know, this all feels kind of small ball. Or just like buy a big fleet of water bombers. Let's jump to federal politics. Parliament returned on Monday and while everyone was gearing up to watch the big like Pierre Polyev versus Justin Trudeau fights and clashes in question period and everything like that. Uh, Trudeau came out with a hard-to-undersell bombshell of an announcement that everybody's probably heard about right now, that he accused India of being behind the killing of Hardeep Singh Nijar, who was a Canadian citizen who died, uh, was shot to death in Surrey back in June outside the Guru Nanak Sikh Gudwara. Um, Specifically, he said over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of the Canadian citizen. Uh, And any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty, a sentiment easily echoed by the leaders of the Conservatives and NDP. Because, yeah. Yeah, it's bad. It's... Interesting, though, um, he didn't, like, straight out say, yeah, we think uh, Modi signed off on this directly, and that's terrible. Um, and so, like, he left, a, you know, just enough room for quasi-plausible deniability and let India kind of walk back, offer up something, kind of, that. and that is just not the tack that was taken uh, by the Indian government, who based on their actions of all but uh, seem to have confirmed it uh, that they uh, had a part in this or at least acting like they did which is being yeah, interesting we got- they haven't straight up said this but like the actions are very much a so what if if we did we were within our rights to which is not a taking that uh, small opening and uh walking through the door with it. Yeah, Evan Dyer and Alexander Panetta over at CBC News 
released a story just this afternoon saying that uh, Canadian intelligence says they have communications involving Indian officials themselves, including Indian diplomats present in Canada, that related to uh, this assassination. Frankly, uh, some of this intelligence was provided by an unnamed ally in the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance. So probably this means the NSA was reading their diplomatic tables. So, yeah, we have some solid evidence here We have of leaks. Uh, one of the stories that came out from the Globe and Mail, I think this was from um, Stephen Chase and Bob Fife, was that they were about to leak uh, more intelligence from their unnamed sources in CSIS that this allegation was being pursued. And that's part of what maybe prompted Trudeau to announce in Parliament. Maybe it was also strategic on the timing to kind of reframe how this session of parliament is so, or maybe he was just like frustrated by the fact that he had brought it up directly with uh narendra modi at a recent conference in india and having not gotten anything good there or through other diplomatic channels he's like fuck it let's just blow everything up by saying it in parliament so there's a couple things to pick up on um touch on that last one definitely explains the uh very kind of frosty reception and uh, whatnot that uh, Trudeau received while he was there. Um, but in terms of the actual release, I don't think the this is being put out for uh, political reasons to grab attention away from things. Um, mostly because they ended up scooping their own uh, planned we're going to bring in the grocery CEOs and give them a good finger-wagging about all of this stuff. Uh, that actually was happening uh, Monday afternoon, and, you know, were it not for a couple tweets that uh, Francois Philippe Champagne and uh, Krista Freeland put out, like, nobody would know known it had even happened. And hey, they've not gotten... Or their comms have definitely degraded somewhat in the past year and a bit, but even they are not that bad as to uh, counter-program their own big affordability show trial theater, whatever you want to call it on that. Uh, th this is something that I am quite sure was the case that uh, it's like was reported uh, that uh, Steve Chase and Bob Fife basically had the story, were ready to go. Uh, they'd apparently reached out to the government for comment on this and was asked to uh, wait a week before they published. Um, and there was a bit of back and forth and basically agreed that they would be publishing on Tuesday. So, uh, um, and they would give the government time to get back to them uh, before they went to press on it and uh, apparently the government decided they were going to, uh, scoop the, the globe scoop on this and, uh, came out on Monday with it. It's the biggest dick move in PR, but like, it can be very effective. Yeah. I mean, they've burned a bridge on that, but, uh, uh they got an effect. Chase, Chase and Fife are always going to have to go to the prime minister for comment on questions like this. Maybe they'll be less forgiving on timelines in the future, but... They're still going to have to at least try to ask for the Prime Minister's comment. But yeah. It, it, I don't think they'll give, get the benefit cool. of the doubt the way they got in this yeah. case. So, like what we know, to go back to 
Singh Najjar is. Uh, he, you know, had been a Canadian citizen for quite a long time, living in Surrey since the mid two thousands. Um, he's been involved in Khalistani and Sikh politics for quite a while. He had been organizing this Khalistan separatism vote that happened earlier this year at a number of uh, gurdwaras and temples around the world, basically a non-binding plebiscite of the diaspora to I'll, I'll give them this. It's a novel form of protest to try to bring attention to their, you know, their concern and their issues and to do so in a very peaceful way. That was pretty novel. And I like that. Nevertheless, um, Singh Najjar had previously been labeled a terrorist by India in 2020 for his involvement in the Khalistani separatist movement stuff. Uh, there's a lot of politics in India around the treatment of Sikh Muslim and Muslim minorities, and we're not the people to talk about that. Um, but the point being, India had tried to extradite Hardeep Singh Najjar uh, previously, but Canada had denied those requests. And so it seemed like they didn't like him quite a bit. And based on the you know cables that have been intercepted and the statement by Trudeau, it seems like they decided somewhere in that government that he needed to not be alive. And so some mass gunmen drove through Surrey and shot him in front of his Gurdwara back in June, which, you know, is a, th a thing that happened. Like, it's just wild, right? Like, people in the Sikh community have definitely suspected and been complaining about Indian interference in their communities in Canada because India is trying to clamp down heavy on some of the... Sikh nationalist movements and things like that and have been for a long time but you know there's been an increasing push on that I don't know if anyone was expecting it to rise to murder and assassination within the community undoubtedly but this is not something you see too much like I, I heard it well pointed out on Canada land that like America has definitely killed people of foreign countries in their countries in recent years, like Osama bin Laden. And well, I guess he wasn't in his country, yeah, but he, was he wasn't in America. Yeah, he was a Saudi in Pakistan. But you know, it, it's not it's like not unprecedented. He, it's, yeah, feels weird. And, and there is a slight difference because, you know, in theory, Canada and India are both Commonwealth allied countries that are both democracies and on the same side of so many issues. But here they're, you know, in, you know, violating our sovereignty, as Trudeau and the others put it. Yeah, it, it feels particularly unprecedented because this is Canada and we're used to kind of the world problems being somewhere else and not in Canada or something that affects Canadians. Um, just being a luxury that Canada's generally enjoyed, but uh, as this unfortunately reminds us, the uh, the world's a pretty nasty and dangerous place, and it is something we uh, have to confront and prepare for. The fallout from these accusations has been pretty swift. Canada expelled an Indian diplomat. India expelled an, at least one Canadian diplomat. India it's, has suspended visa services for Canadians I, and their <laughs> own citizens. It's I can't even keep up. And it'll probably be out of date by the time you hear this, but... It's also worth noting that the uh, diplomat that was expelled was identified as the uh, head of the uh, Indian Intelligence Services Canadian operation. 
seems like the person you'd expel if you're mad about uh, covert ops in your country. Pretty much. And yeah, it's also a way of, say, of saying, yeah, we know who your, uh, I don't know if they call them station chiefs, uh, or, but basically you're, yeah, we know who's running your intelligence operation here and we're sending them packing. And then the other complicated issue in this is the international affairs angle where Canada, together with its Western allies, were trying to pretty much engage India as an ally in a hegemonic show of force against a rising China-Russia axis almost. And India had for a long time kind of been floating on the fence, trying to keep above the disputes. And, you know, Canada had been engaged in trying to develop a trade relationship, a free trade agreement with India, and a number of other countries are building closer ties, including America and Australia and Britain. Um, it's not entirely accurate to say they've been above the fray. Uh, in the past couple of years, there have been skirmishes along the uh, India-China border, high in the Himalayas. So there are very much tensions between New Delhi and Beijing. And as I guess, yeah. sorry, I guess I meant India was trying to be above the fray in like the Ukraine-Russian war. Yeah, so like India during the Cold War was fairly friendly with the Soviets and was not necessarily part of the uh, Western democratic uh, order back then. Um, and they have generally continued to have good relations with the Russians in the post-Cold War era. Huge amount of the military kit is of Russian origin. Um, they have not been particularly active or gone along with many of the uh, sanctions that have been leveled against Russia since uh, 2022. So yeah, they've generally operated outside of the uh, the Western alliance system, uh, for lack of a better term, and in recent years there have been attempts to bring them more closely uh, into a kind of Indo-Pacific alliance at in part as a counterweight against China. And that has complicated things for sure. And the U.S. was probably the uh, first mover on that one. But uh, is within the last year, I believe, we put out our own Indo-Pacific strategy that uh, had India as a big part of the uh, reorientation of the Canadian... Uh, international effort in that region of the world well that's dead um it's definitely strained most likely <laughs> it's definitely strained like the the uh, u.s it, has, and like these policies so there were some initial reports that the u.s was basically not having canada just back on this one in mean, uh the interest of advancing uh cooperation with india as part of the virgin alliance structure uh the u.s has pretty aggressively push back on that and say, no, we've we agree with the intelligence, we've been raising these issues ourselves with uh, India. They haven't gone as far as to say we're going to uh, step back from what we've been doing and what our strategy is, but the message is also clear that being part of the this alliance and coming in and al aligning with DC is not a 
get out of jail free card on this stuff either. So yeah, it's a mess. Like Canada's was- obviously going to be in a much rockier position and the uh, relationship is going to be much further strained and will probably take decades to recover on that. We'll have to see where the uh, various uh, tit-for-tat diplomatic moves go. That still seems to be something that is ongoing. But, uh, you know, this is not going to be the the end of the relationship, but it's going to enter a much different, more distant and colder phase for sure. But, uh, you know, as a country that is also in the U.S.'s orbit, there will be... The, the tide will move both boats in the same direction to a certain extent, and that's something that Ottawa is going to have to deal with. Yeah, like the risk with trying to forge ties with India these days has always been that Modi and his BJP party of Hindu nationalists was a lot less of a stable, predictable partner than some of the previous governments of like the Congress party or some of the more moderates. Um, they've taken a pretty hard line, both domestically and sometimes internationally, on policies. And so, although the Congress Party, you you bel- play you play with, yeah, the Congress Party doesn't like Sikhs much. Yeah, either. they were in power when some of the uh, when yeah things got when there was a massacre when there's a <laughs> significant violence around that. Uh, they've apparently just lined up behind the Indian government. Uh, in this and uh turns out this thing bringing about a moment of bipartisanship is uh something that's happening over there as well as here so there's that element of it i mean the fallout from this with uh visas being suspended in many cases or access to those services being suspended is gonna hit um you know immigrant and student communities really hard when we were talking about international students canada's like Number one source, I'm pretty sure, when I looked at the numbers, was India by far. Yeah, the, um, my, and my understanding is Canada is still issuing visas. It's India that's not issu- giving visas to Canadians. Right. Um, uh, so yeah, if you're planning on a vacation to India, you may have to uh, reconsider. It it makes a lot of things very chilly and tense. So um, yeah, don't. it's not great that we're, we picked fight. I mean, we didn't pick the fight, but that we're in a fight with a nuclear power that has a billion people. Yeah, not great. And uh, yeah, it's a unfortunate reminder that uh, this sort of thing just doesn't happen elsewhere. It also happens in Canada and that uh, maybe the era of uh, Canadian complacency about this uh, will be coming to an end. No, nah, people can very easily ignore this because it happened to brown people who uh, they don't identify with, to put it uh, crudely. What I'm more hopeful on is when the terms of reference, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, for the foreign interference inquiry were set up, it was pretty broad. It talked about China, it talked about Russia, and it talked about any other foreign governments that are interfering in Canada. And I know Jagmeet Singh is already like flagged that hey, we should have been talking about India, and now he's like, we really need to talk about India. Well, it uh, uh, they would have know, had this intelligence in front of them when they were crafting those terms of reference. So it was no doubt structured to be broad, probably in large part because of this. So maybe we'll get to learn a little bit more in the coming weeks and months as that committee or that inquiry 
races through its work for its like February deadline for its first report. But let's jump across the aisle to the middle, the exact center of the political compass, but not the mushy middle. <laughs> the cool new center is can our Canadian future, Canadian future party, the the center ice conservatives who I don't think we've talked about on this podcast in the past. I, think we may have, uh, this is, I feel like we may have mentioned maybe, them like a year or two ago when they were just coming around. Yeah. After Rick Peterson failed to become leader of the conservative party out of nowhere for the second time, he launched a club for uh, non-conspiracy minded conservatives in almost their own words, uh, but also not like fiscally irresponsible liberals. And, They've had conversations among themselves for about a few months or a year, and they've decided to launch a new party called Canadian Future, which I fucking hate. It's so stupid. Uh, and out of nowhere, Dominic Cardi of the New Brunswick legislature, I believe, is launch is leading it. Uh, I'm pretty sure Rick Peterson only ran once. As a oh, I thought he ran in two leadership races in a row, but or maybe he talked about it and then realized. Yeah, that I think was- he's. He was float floated as one, but he didn't run in either the uh, 2020 or 2022 one. He was just in like the massive like 14, 15 person thing that was the, the post-Harper leadership race. Uh, I can't remember where he placed in that one, but uh, it's not particularly high. Uh, yeah, regardless, this has been something that's been kicking around for a while. It... Uh, I got eliminated in the third round. Um, it first started as like a rough, like think tanky organization type. It takes probably the wrong word, but yeah, kind of a hey, we don't like the direction the conservative party's going. Organization or something. They held a conference sometime last year after uh, the leadership race concluded, and you know, you had a bunch of random people speak at it who kind of, yeah, occupy that rough center of the spectrum, like Christy Clark, Andrew Coyne, yeah, I think Martha Hull Finley may have made an appearance. You know, that crowd. Um, On there, and then it subsequently there started to be talk of yeah, maybe we should turn this thing into a political party. And honestly, I do not understand why. Like, I get... The disaffection with the federal conservatives. That I can understand. Um, yeah, like, if anything, but I, like, I should be in, like, the target demo for this. And I am just, like, under-enthused by it. And I think in large part that has to do with uh, just the fact that, like, there is really no clear path for this party. It's, it, it feels like if they were to have better than expected success, they would be, like... The P- the remnant of the PCs were circa like two thousand hanging on to like a few seats here and there, but basically being a, a rump of a party. As if they managed to sit seed from where they are now. Yeah, it there they had a line, Cardi had a line that he gave the CBC or someone in one of the press conferences of or maybe it was even in his own Facebook Live press conference of just like you know, the liberals are going for the nostalgic 90s of, you know, 
their optimism about spending and the economy. And it's like, dude, you're playing like the nostalgia of the 1980s conservatives when all you had to talk about was taxes. And like, the public has really moved on. Yeah, like, he's not <laughs> in so many ways. in that diagnosis. I don't think we talked about this, but um, like, around when the conservative party convention was, you know, the liberals were busy, like, pushing out a bunch of stuff on social media, taking shots at Pierre Polyev and whatnot. And, like, two of the big pushes on that was dusting off a video from, like, a year before of uh, Jean Chrétien going, Canada is not broken, Canada's great. Like, and then there was also, like, a, hey, you know who else used common sense? Mike Harris. Which, both of those things do not exactly say relevant to 2023. They're very much like trying to reanimate uh, the dead corpse of 90s politics and bring it into this current moment. So like, they're not wrong. This is, the liberals are definitely, I think, looking back on the 90s and are a little kind of obsessed with that. But I just don't see any sign that these people exactly get with the times. And uh, I mean, it was interesting. The, there was a story out kind of the day before this announcement uh, in one of the major media outlets in Canada, kind of basically doing the like, here's our interview ahead of schedule with this to kind of soft launch it and kind of set the stage and everything. And uh, they put it out in the Toronto Star, which is not a paper very many conservatives exactly think is uh, one that uh, really speaks to them or gives them a fair shot at this stuff. And one that I don't think a lot of uh, conservatives, if given the choice, would be uh, going to as their first place to look. So just, I don't know, it all feels like this is a, bunch of people doing this that like don't have their finger on the pulse of uh where the country is i definitely agree with that i think they may have gone with the star because no one else cared um that's the cruel interpretation the optimistic interpretation was they went to the star because they think they have a better chance of picking off blue liberals than they do of getting anyone who's currently parking their vote with the conservative Maybe though, even the stars who are more at red 40%. liberal than blue liberal so yeah i mean like you just have to look at what the state of conservatism is around the english-speaking world in almost every province that has a conservative government or a successful conservative movement america britain australia they've all taken on a, a sort of populist reactionary trend in addition to having some of the fundamentals still there uh, there's some social conservatism getting picked up as well. Uh, but it's that kind of vibe that is working. And they're like, we don't like that vibe. And it's worth the electoral energy. I admit, I don't like that vibe either. Yeah, it's worth the electoral energy <laughs> but- for sure. Um, I mean, the conservatism I like is kind of like the, the steady hand on the tiller type stuff rather than a lot of what we see. But like, I don't think no one wants to vote for a steady hand when the economy feels like shit. Yeah, though. and like they're not a, at the personal. They're not level. doing a great job of projecting it. I mean, they're not projecting the opposite of that either. But they're certainly not projecting that. Just, just, yeah. Kind of grasping at words here, but like, also their website sucks. They have an initial website up, and it's it's built on Wix. Uh, some of the links don't work. The icons don't make sense. It's it's it's, it's a, a work thing. In progress. I love and making like, fun of a bad website. Fair enough. Getting a 
national party off the ground is is no small thing. I'm willing to cut them a little slack on some of that stuff, although they had time to do this right. There was no rush on getting this out the door this week. Um, a couple of, and also, like, why are you put putting this out basically at the point where the Conservative Party is probably in its best and strongest state since 2011, 2010? Like, this is the strongest the Conservative Party has been in a decade right now. And like, if you want to displace a party, you need to go for where it's weak. You need to be able to exploit a weakness. And right now, the party they're seeking to displace is unified, strong, just coming off a, a solid convention. Like, there is no real way for this party to, like, chip away at it with any seriousness. Like, I'm sure Andrew Coyne is happy to see this thing, but, uh, you know, outside of him and, like, the dozen people who think like him in the country, like, who is the electoral coalition for this? And I just don't see it. Well, we'll come back to them if they really? ever manage to get a second story in the news. Well, maybe not quite a second story, but if if it seems like they ever find some more uh, energy, uh, which they don't have right now. Let's finish off with two provincial stories quickly to round out this episode. I want to go to Ontario first. We've talked, I think we talked a little bit about the Greenbelt saga in Ontario, I don't even know if we did. Yeah, thing on it. Doug Ford tried to sell off the green belt in the schemiest of deals. Got caught out by the Auditor General and the media. Uh, ended up losing the Chief of Staff to the Housing Minister, the Housing Minister, and yesterday the Minister of what was it called, Public and Business Services, whatever weird name that was. Those three had resigned, and now Doug Ford has finally said. I'm going to pause this whole plan and maybe not develop the thing that has been a political consensus to not develop for 20 years or longer, quite a bit longer than that. Yeah, I mean, Ford ended up in the inevitable spot and contrary to pretty much every bit of conventional wisdom when it comes to crisis management, he took the slow route there rather than trying to get to the inevitable end quickly to make the story go away. (sighs) Like, there was uh, some polling earlier on before the uh, skeeziness of the whole thing came to the forefront that suggested there was actually more political support out there for uh, building more greenfield homes and what uh, the green belt kind of yeah changing up some of the stuff around that and you know what yeah fair enough like yeah cities should densify quite a bit but now they're as you densify, you should also, you do also need to naturally expand outward a bit, and you know, lo- locking this boundary at one particular point doesn't necessarily make sense for all future points in time. You went about it a terrible way, and basically, by doing so, torpedoed what could have been an emerging, maybe not realignment, but uh, reshuffling on that issue, and. Yeah, now it's just a mess, and uh, his government is battered and bruised for it, and all for nothing. I like how good the Ontario PCs can be at, like, destroying an issue that... 
I don't necessarily, you know, I am not as plugged in on Ontario politics on whether or not this should be developed. My gut says no, but like the previous story I think of is when John Tory was running for the Ontario PCs to be premier and he looked at the system of funding Catholic schools and public schools equally and he went, well, this is clearly unjust. We will do something about it. And I go, yeah, that's good. And he goes, we'll fund all the religious schools fully. And everyone went, that, that's not the way to do that. And then that issue was dead again for a while. And they although, just went back to the status quo. So. Yeah, although that one was even, actually, I don't want to say more of a known goal, because uh, this one was a... There was no skeeziness no in that skeeziness. one, at least. I it's, didn't have any evidence that the like Muslims and Jewish a, school lobbies were you know, giving favors to John Tory at his daughter's wedding. A different kind of own goal. They were both own goals, but yes. uh, like that one was an own goal in the sense that nobody was caring about the issue at all. Whereas in Ontario, like everywhere else in Canada, housing was a major concern, and you could, and there was actually a political case for make, doing things to get more homes built, um, and like. The own goal in this case was they did it in about the most worst corrupt way, but there was like at least you could see a politically motivating case for this, unlike that one, which was just a hey, there is a grenade that is just sitting out there that nobody is touching. Let me go pull the pin on that, which was the John Tory. Yes, this is the first clear rake that, uh, d- yeah, this is the first clear rake that Doug Ford is stepped on and has clearly hit him in the face. He's been stepping on rakes for years and they just seem to like go by him. But this one seems to stick. Uh, over in Alberta, they're looking for rakes as well as they announced today the release of a report looking at whether the province should quit the Canada pension plan and set up a Alberta pension plan. And if they do, what would that look out like? And they made the amazing discovery that they should get more than half of the total money from the Canada Pension Plan um, transferred to Alberta because, you know, they're they're rich and deserve it. And come on. <laughs> I, the, the math was a little bit more specific than that, but it is a very math is difficult situation for my Jim, Dinning, uh, Jim Prentice throwback. They seem to have decided that you have to calculate what they're owed based on what if they never went into the CPP and how much would they have saved if they had created their own and then that magic money that doesn't exist is owed to them rather than some fair portion of the money that does exist, whether that's, you know, by population or by uh, GDP and a slightly more uh, fiscal um, analysis, say like 20% based on what Trevor Tombay has calculated. Uh, not half. They're not getting half of all Canadians' money. Well, not money. all Canadians. All not Canadians all. except Quebec. All English. Quebec has its own pension plan. It's been that way for uh, a long time. Like I think they are roughly like 13, 14% of the non-Quebec population. So like half is just a crazy ask on that. And like, there, are, You can make the case that, yeah, maybe Alberta should get, you know, more than its direct population percentage. Um that kind of stuff. Yeah, they have higher per capita incomes than the rest of the uh country. They would have contributed more per person than um probably Canada on average. Yeah, some stuff like that. And like if you look at uh kind of some of the projections that have been done, 
like an Alberta pension plan would probably have lower premiums than CPP just because turns out if you're a province that is younger demographically and richer you it helps your pension math quite a bit um so you know what you, you can play around in like the yeah 15 to 20 percent range and then not be crazy half just like immediately goes like everyone looks at that and goes what the hell are you talking about this is clearly unfair and a non-starter michelle leduc senior global communications director for the canada pension plan governing board we respect the right of Albertans to consider withdrawing from the Canada Pension Plan. However, the amount in the report says could be extracted from the CPP is impossible and based on an invented <laughs> formula. References to how much a province might claim from the CPP fund should be regarded with caution and a high degree of skepticism until many issues are resolved between federal and provincial governments. Any idea of a withdrawal from the CPP would be complex, fiercely disputed, involve political posturing, and would result in risk for Albertans for years to come. The best way to protect the financial security of Albertans during one of the most vulnerable times of their lives is to preserve a national fund. And that last little bit, of course, he's going to say because, you know, he represents the CPP. But it's also true. And meanwhile, it looks like uh, Daniel Smith is gearing up to with uphold her pl promise to have a provincial referendum on an Alberta pension plan, something that when last polled, got about 20 or 30% support in the province. So good luck with yeah, that. To, to be fair, a lot of people don't care. But like, it's not a vote mover among the non-wackos. Yeah, like, I think the bigger political winner on this would definitely be Trudeau, not Smith, because now he gets to uh, defend everyone else's pension savings. Because, I mean, let's be clear, you take half the uh, money out and give it to 15%-ish uh, of the uh, people in the fund, you basically screw over everyone else uh, who either have to uh, pay much higher premiums or have their uh, payouts significantly decreased to, to make it work. It's just, yeah, a non-starter. And yeah, like you said, it generally doesn't make sense for like a small province to do this themselves. I mean, there's a few things that are working in Alberta's favor that uh, are mentioned. It makes it, you know, less crazy than if, uh, you know, New Brunswick tried to do its own pension plan, uh, which would have none of the advantages and all of the drawbacks. But yeah, no, the the bigger the pool, the better. Anyway, this is just ridiculous. Like it's not going to happen, and it, I don't even know what they're thinking with this kind of invented math on this. Maybe try and start high to kind of peg the negotiations to a high number, but I think it's more likely to backfire than not. I think they weren't hoping to talk about the high number of what they deserve, but more the like Albertans will save $1,400 a year on average and try and focus on that. And they have just like blew the comms on it and made themselves a laughing stock. Like the entire premise comes from like most secessionist corners of the Alberta conservative movement. Well, it's only that. The kind, it's the movement that like spawned social credits, like most ridiculous and often racist ideas and it's just like the new iteration of that kind of thinking like well also i think there are a, reasonable an element of they want to invest more of the funds in alberta and particularly 
their oil and gas industry, which has not had as much. Oh, I'm so glad you brought which, that up. Yeah, which is because- like clearly part of the motivation behind this is that um, there's less money coming in from the uh, global capital markets into the uh, oil and gas industry, and like this is a way to patch that hole. But in doing so, you dramatically destroy the diversification of the fund. And, you know, it's not great if your province's primary industry is also the thing that is funding your pension plan. Like, pension plans are supposed to be diversified so that it is not uh, having all the eggs in one basket. I mean, the put all your retirement money in the thing that's also generating your income was the was what happened at Enron and why a whole bunch of people got screwed in that case. It's just a bad plan. Like the so Alberta has and why I laugh so much and it's sad actually is Alberta has the Alberta Investment Management Company, which manages uh, a number of investments on behalf of workers in Alberta. And three years ago there was a massive scandal because they basically blew four billion dollars on oil and gas sector grifts and it looked like yeah, they just tried to choose favorites for political purposes rather than just like good investments. And if you look at the history of the performance of those two funds, even just in the last couple of years, CPP does pretty well. AIMCO doesn't. So like- Yeah, I mean, that's like- a- This money is not the Alberta government's. Even the CPP is not the federal government's, right? Pension plans are taken from workers' paychecks. They are workers' monies to be given back to workers. So they should be responsible. So to their needs and not political whims, they need to be fully separate. And yeah, that's sort of right. There's like a yeah. perfect example of what conservatives normally will talk about on all of the problems with trying to usurp market decisions by political ones of governments, and they are just like not taking their own ideology seriously when they do that. So anyway, have fun with your referendum, Alberta. Uh, We'll come back to it if and when that happens, because referendums are usually well, bad, sure, like, and want, this one will probably be much worse. Yeah. Also, I don't know about you, but I certainly want my CPP money to not go anywhere. <laughs> Jesus. Wee. <laughs> All right. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.